Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is internationally best-selling author Corbin Addison. His new book is Wastelands, the true story of farm country on trial, which is published by our friends at Alfred A. Knopf. Corbin, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor to have you here. And Corbin, I hope all is well with you. How have these last couple of years been treating you? Do you feel like we have shaken this pandemic off or are we still in the thick of it? Golly, I hope so. Uh, you know, it's, I was fortunate because I dived into the writing of this book right as COVID hit. Mm. So I had a project to keep me busy and one that did not require me to be around other than my people, other than my family. Mm-hmm. So, and it worked out okay, uh, but it definitely was hard on my kids. It was hard on uh, on my wife having, you know, my kids uh, doing school uh, home for almost a year and a half. I mean, it was just, it was difficult. So, you know, we, we weathered it. Um, do I think that we're over it? I, I think that we're getting to a point where most of us feel like it should be over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how that works out in the long run, I don't know. People are behaving like uh, like it's over, even though the virus yeah, is still right out there. It's going to be with us. Yeah, absolutely. How old are your kids, Corbin? Now they are, uh, well, my son is almost 15 oh. and, and mm-hmm. my daughter's 12, but a very precocious 12. So, so she is just as much a teenager as my son. Yeah, right on. My son is six. So um, it's been interesting uh, negotiating times with school and everything for us as well. Well, Absolutely. um, Yeah, thank you, Corbin. Uh, Before we dive into this remarkably um, important book, Wastelands, I'm hoping you can take a moment to set it up for our listeners so they know what we are talking about. Could you please set your book up for our listeners, Corbin? Yeah, so uh, you know, it's just, it tells the story of um, a marquee American corporation, um, the Bacon Guys, Smithfield. I mean, mm-hmm. anybody who loves bacon has uh, tasted Smithfield's product in one way or another. Uh, go to Starbucks and get a you know a, an egg and bacon sandwich, and it will likely be Smithfield's bacon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not a bad company fundamentally, uh, but one of the great challenges, I think with a lot of companies out there is that once you get a business model in place, it's kind of hard to derail the train and change it. Um, even when it turns out that the business model has uh, really nasty consequences, um, you know, for people in the environment. And that's ultimately what happened here. Uh, so it's, it's also the story of a community um, in rural North Carolina, uh, the Eastern plain, uh, coastal plain of North Carolina between about halfway between Raleigh and the coast that has been the home of uh, millions and millions of market hogs for the last generation. And, you know, Smithfield's hogs, unfortunately, have produced some real uh, pollution in in the air, in the water, in the land. And that's had an effect on neighbors in a way that really wasn't remedied or addressed by politicians, by, you know, the powers that be until some enterprising lawyers uh, who had a heart for justice stepped in and was willing, you know, were willing to take on the Goliath and say to Smithfield, you know, you're going to have to change or you're going to go to trial. 
that's kind of how, you know, the story, uh, I tell the story from inside the lawsuit, but I also set it against the backdrop of the company and the community. Yeah, thank you so much, Corbin. Um, the introduction to your book is written by John Grisham. Uh, John has joined us on this program many times. He says that this is a book he wishes he had written. High praise from someone who has sold enough books to build the Great Pyramids out of uh, and more. John, of course, will be in conversation with you at Quail Ridge Books the week after we are recording this interview. Uh, the event will have taken place, I believe, by the time this is published. But what, Corbin, does John's support mean to you and this book? Oh, it means so much. I mean, John uh, has been a friend of mine now for a decade, and He's someone who I admire on a lot of different levels. I mean, he's been a mentor in the literary world. You know, very few authors have ever accomplished what he has accomplished. But one thing that I, I love about John is that he's never lost the sense of who he is, where he comes mm -hmm. from, his fundamental humanity, his passion for justice is very real. You see it in his own pages, and you also see it in the way that he supported me and my writing, uh, all of which has been about justice in different ways, my novels, as well as now nonfiction. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, a real privilege to have John write the foreword to say, you know, such things about, about the book and, and frankly, to have his name on the, on the front cover as it is. Um, it's, you know, I just, I'm honored. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Corbin. Um, you chose to write this book in the style of a novel, uh, which pays off, by the way. I've been telling all of my fellow booksellers here um, that the reading experience, though the story is different, is analogous to that, uh, that I felt when reading Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. Uh, hmm. Why did you make the decision to write the book in this way, Corbin? You know, it, I, I'm a storyteller. Um, and I've learned how to do reporting uh, through the process of researching my stories, but I don't fundamentally think of myself as a reporter or a journalist. Mm -hmm. I wanna tell a compelling story. Um, you know, at the end of the day, like a book requires a, a big investment of time. You know, you can sit down and, and sort of snack on uh, a lot of entertainment these days. You know, uh, whether it, it's it's on the screen or or on the page, but books require, you know, they require days, they require a weekend, a, a week, you know, sometimes to read, depending on on how you look at them. And I just want that experience to be fun. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you know, as a reader myself, I've always wanted to be uh, enlightened while I'm being entertained. Uh, it, nobody really wants to read, you know, the driest kind of story. And, and so, look, I mean, the, the beauty of this story was that I could do that. And, and I could do that because the people behind it entrusted me with their stories mm -hmm. in a way that opened the door for me to really get down into detail about their characters, their motivations, their thoughts in particular scenes, which is what you do in a novel. Like, I knew that that I would need that level of detail. And so I had to build that trust, but people opened the door. Also, I was fortunate to have, you know, the, the, the courtroom, courtroom dramas, I, it, they're kind of like modern America's Greek theater. I mean, there's, there's something inherently dramatic about the courtroom. And in this case, you know, you've got on the one side, a community of, of mostly black people of modest means in rural North Carolina going up against a multi-billion dollar 
Chinese owned, you know, uh, food conglomerate. I mean, it's David versus Goliath. It's, you know, it's a story that's as old as time. And, and so there was a lot of inherent drama that allowed me to tell this story in a, a page turning way. And that's what I set out to do. Yeah, thank you. And we've all um, had our taste of courtroom dramas this week as we're recording. People seem to be interested in the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard. <laughs> Um, a few people. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, well, speaking of the people behind your story, you spoke with many people about this story, uh, over 60. And you say that these people who were affected by Smithfield Foods and their farms became your friends. Uh, conversely, Smithfield never spoke with you or none of their employees or lawyers were given permission to speak with you. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your interview processes, why you chose the number of people you did, and what you think it signals that anyone adjacent to Smithfield Foods was not permitted to speak with you? Sure. I mean, look, this story had played out in the, the public sphere for 30 years. So in reality, Smithfield has told its story in countless ways through its PR people, um, mm. through its press releases, through its executives uh, in five federal trials, through its, you know, uh, surrogates in the, in the legislature. Uh, I mean, Smithfield mm. is largely, and I say this colloquially, but it's, it really is in effect. You see it in the book. They more or less own the legislature in North, North Carolina. So their story has been told by people like Jimmy Dixon, the legislature from down east in the area where the you know are the clients come from, um, and I, I'm not I'm not shocked that their PR people told them to stay quiet and and told their lawyers not to talk to me. As far as you know, those people who did talk to me, my research process has always been, you know, I, I follow, uh, you know, I, I go where the doors open. And, mm -hmm. and I look for stories that I think will work well on the page. So, you know, and one thing always leads to another. So I started with Mona Lisa Wallace, who was a mm -hmm. friend of a friend. I was introduced through people, a mutual friend who both of us trust. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I met Mona at the fifth trial. She invited me to come down and watch the opening. Mm -hmm. And I did, and I was able to meet her and I was able to meet her team, which included some members of her family, her eldest daughter is a lawyer in her firm. Her nephew is a lawyer in her firm, really is a family shop. I was able to meet Mark, uh, Mike Kesky, uh, the, the trial lawyer. who's one of the best trial lawyers in America uh, who tried all the cases. I watched him in the well before the jury and it was mesmerizing. And then I was able to sit down for lunch with the clients of that case and hear some of their stories. And that, that really opened the door. I was like, okay, these people have a story that is really compelling. I think I can tell it. I'm a lawyer by training. I know how to tell compelling stories about justice in particular. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to dive in. And so, like I said, one thing led to another. One open door led to another. And, and by the end, I felt like I had really run the gamut of all the people that I needed to speak to in order to bring this story to life. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Corbin. Listeners, we are going to take a short break here for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Corbin Addison. The Book and Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM allows you to buy audiobooks directly through your favorite local independent bookstore like Explore Booksellers. You continue to put money back into your local economy and help local bookstores thrive. 
please navigate to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your local independent bookstores in the process. I'm back with Corbin Addison, author of Wastelands, which is published by our friends at Alfred A. Knopf. Corbin, you mentioned earlier that um, the issues surrounding uh, Smithfield Foods and their farms were not being addressed by uh, local politicians in North Carolina. What is wrong with the politicians in North Carolina and why are they not addressing these issues? You know, I mean, I think what I saw uh, happening in the, the state house in North Carolina is really indicative of, of broader problems that we have across the United States. Mm-hmm. I mean, money rules. I mean, it, you know, follow the money to answer almost any question of why it seems that certain people with power get away with things they shouldn't. And certain people, you know, who don't have the power and don't have the money often find it difficult to have their voices heard. I mean, Smithfield is the classic special interest. Uh, it's not just Smithfield. It's really, you know, the agricultural, big ag, uh, agricultural industry in communities where the tax base, where the jobs are all connected to Smithfield, where the church plates on Sunday are filled with the tithes of growers and people connected to the industry. I mean, it's no wonder that the politicians speak for the industry in that way. But I think what's most difficult about it is that even after, and looking back 25 five years, even after it became clear that the problems were happening and neighbors were, you know, having to deal with, uh, you know, air they couldn't breathe, you know, waking up in the middle of the night, uh, you know, and un- unable to breathe in their own beds, uh, you know, having health effects, you know, from asthma to heart issues, um, you know, seeing their rivers and streams polluted by runoff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was, Smithfield has something like 2000 hog farms in Eastern North Carolina, and each one of them has at least one, and if not two or three gigantic lagoons full of the waste from the Smithfield hogs. I mean, you know, in one particular, there are 9 million hogs in North Carolina, roughly, and something like 2 million in one county alone. I mean, there are 33 animals, 33 hogs per human in Duplin County. So, you know, what you've got is, you know, you've got uh, a problem that became really um, transparent and obvious in the 1990s. Uh, activism, community activists stepped up, took the issue to the, to the state house and said, hey, what are you going to do about it? And here, here's the classic example of legislative capture. The, the politicians, there were some that were, you know, clearly concerned, but they could not get the state house to move mm-hmm. until Pinehurst got threatened. And Pinehurst, of course, is, you know, one of America's storied golf courses. And there was a hog farmer who wanted to build a couple of big hog farms near down the road from Pinehurst. And apparently as soon as that happened, the legislature started to move. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, you, you just compare the constituencies. Who is the constituency of Pinehurst? Well, it's most, mostly wealthy and upper middle class, mostly white people. And who's the constituency down east that's suffering from Smithfield's waste? Mostly black people and people of color of, of modest means, low income folks. Uh, you know, that's the way that unfortunately 
politics roles in in a lot of America, not just in North Carolina. So, you know, I tell some stories in the book about how this plays out. And frankly, it plays out in a way it's kind of hard to believe that it's real. Um, but you follow the money and you can explain it. Yeah, absolutely. The system is broken and it needs to be overhauled um, for sure. Well, um, Corbin, the industry, the pork industry, likes to call hog growers family farmers. Um, what are contract hog growers and what sort of Orwellian nonsense is going on by calling them family farmers? <laughs> yeah, that's a longstanding PR trick that mm -hmm. the industry has used. Now, I will say, uh, you know, the the hog farms are um, in many ways planted on top of the old tobacco lands of, you know, the rural, uh, rural North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of the hog farmers have ties, though not all, uh, by any means. There are some that have longstanding family ties to the land. And mm -hmm. they took up these contracts that were offered to them when they could no longer make a living uh, growing tobacco. So there was a kind of, it felt for a time in the 70s and 80s, like the hog industry saved a lot of these, you know, family farmers. What's interesting about, uh, you know, about contract farming, though, is that uh, aside from those original families, a lot of people, investors, uh, you know, people who, you know, just want to make a buck have gotten into it because they bought up land and they've gotten these big loans from, you know, the Farm Bureau and, and others, banks that are allied with the industry. And now, you know, this is just one of many businesses they have. Um, so it's hard to call, you know, a lot of, of the contract farms, family farms in the way that Smithfield has tried to do. And yet, you know, it's, it's a compelling kind of story that they've told um, because, you know, what is more American than the family farmer? So they've, they've really used their contract farmers as kind of, I call it a human shield in, in the lawsuits and, and in the controversy over the years. And it's, it's effective. If they can put up, you know, a, a family that owns a hog farm that loves and then put up pictures of the cute little pigs, you know, coming in like Wilbur and Charlotte's Web and, you know, uh, and then show the cute kids on the family farm and say, these people are being attacked by greedy trial lawyers from out of state, which is exactly what they said. Mm -hmm. Even though, you know, Mona Lisa Wallace, who led the, the charge in the litigation, is from Salisbury, North Carolina, uh, and her whole team is from North Carolina. But look, mm -hmm. if you can say this is a war between greedy trial lawyers and poor family farmers who are just trying to make a living, um, that's a very different story from saying actually what's going on here is this multi-billion dollar, you know, Chinese-owned conglomerate is polluting rivers and streams and the air and making life unlivable uh, and the air unbreathable for, you know, hundreds and even thousands potentially of low-income, you know, residents of eastern North Carolina, many of whom are the great-grandchildren of enslaved, uh, you know, African Americans um, on the plantation. So that's a very different story. The framing matters. And no wonder Smithfield has used the framing of the family farmer in their defense. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Corbin. And similarly, um, speaking of Orwellian nonsense, can you tell me what is the difference between a community activist and an environmental extremist? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, that's another one of 
you know, Smithfield sort of verbal jujitsu that they used. I mean, every time, you know, a community, so take Elsie Herring. Uh, Elsie was one of my favorite uh, interviewees uh, who became a friend. She was a longtime neighbor activist. Uh, you know, her, the land that she lived on, uh, her house was built in the twenties by her father. The land was acquired by her grandfather who had been born into slavery. And, and that land, you know, he got shortly after reconstruction. So she, her history on the land was far, far deeper than that of the hog farm next door. Um, but she was willing to speak out about it. You know, she had had left during the great migration made some money in New York City working in banking at a time when you could do that with a high school degree and just a, a little bit of uh, intelligence and a good work ethic. Came home to take care of her mom when she realized this problem had cropped up. And so she's the classic community activist. I mean, Don Webb is another one. He was a former hog farmer, white guy, who had made money early in the industry until a neighbor told him that uh, you know the the air that they were breathing was no longer breathable thanks to the hogs that Don was raising. Don had the courage to just do what most people wouldn't have done, including I, I wonder if I would have done it. I mean, he shut down his hog farm and became an activist. So th they are, you know, it's hard to call either of those people environmental extremists, and yet that's exactly what the industry and all of its friends and the legislature have always done when these people speak up. Absolutely. Thank you, Corbin. Um, you've mentioned the air being unbreathable. What specifically is it about the fumes um, coming from these farms that is both affecting the health of the farm's neighbors or even sometimes killing the employees of these farms? What is the danger? Yeah, so there are, you know, I'm not a um, either an epidemiologist or, you know, a, a chemical engineer, um, but I, I know a little bit about the science of hog odor now um, and what they call the fate and transport of chemicals. So odor and what we smell is, is a combination of particulates in the air. I mean, there's obviously matter in the air and chemical molecules that, that happen to hit our nose in a certain way. And some of the most odiferous compounds in the world are things like ammonia and hydrogen sulfide. So these are the sort of thing, you know, that, that you can smell for, like methane is, is another off gas uh, that comes from the lagoons and also from the spraying. So if you think about like, uh, maybe let's back up and just say the average hog emits uh, about five times the waste of the average human. So if you have a hog farm with 10,000 hogs, then that's the equivalent of the waste management of a city of 50,000 humans. Now, if you've got a city of 50,000 humans, what do we do with that? We don't just run it into open sewers and keep it in, you know, big kind of open, you know, swimming pool sized, uh, what they call lagoons, what are really cesspools. What we actually do is we treat the waste and then, and then we reuse whatever byproduct we can um, and we don't, you know, just throw it into the rivers and streams. I mean, unfortunately, Smithfield has used a medieval technology. They call it lagoons and spray fields, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to manage all of that waste. And what it's done is because, you know, this is this waste is, is like I said, part, lots of particulates come out of it, uh, blowing this waste up into the air. That's where, you know, that's that's where the problem comes from. It, you, you can have these plumes, they call them 
of air that's like consolidated. If you imagine it's almost like, you know, a big bucket of air that moves together, a column of air that can sit on top of a community for days and make the air, you know, full of those particulates that you just don't want to breathe because they're, they smell so bad. They're also bad for your body. Yeah. So it gets into science, but that's basically the, the, the bottom line. Yeah, thank you, Corbin. And there are uh, documentaries out there where you can see these um, chemicals or, or what have you being sprayed out uh, onto neighbors' land. These documentaries, have, I think, have been labeled as propaganda by people in the industry at this point. But, um, you know, you can see what you can see. I'm curious, Corbin, um, after write, you alluded to this earlier, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Um, after writing this book, uh, do you still eat pork? You know, I was never a huge pork consumer other than bacon, but yes, absolutely. I still eat bacon. And, and really what I tell people is, you know, after you hear about the wastelands, after you read about it, uh, you know, re I, I'm not, I'm not going to try to make you put down your bacon. Uh, but I do think that you'll probably make a different decision about who you buy from when you're in the grocery aisle the next time. And that, look, I mean, that's true with, with all kinds of different industries. I mean, there are some players that are doing a good job of managing, uh, you know, the fallout of their business model and being honest and taking care of community members and the environment. And there are others that are not. And look, I, I hope that Smithfield cleans up its act. They've done certain things as a result of the lawsuit, um, you know, but they've not done, they've not ultimately done the thing that 20 years ago they promised that they were gonna try to do. They, they entered into in 2000 an agreement with the Attorney General of North Carolina to explore alternative technologies to manage their waste. They found technologies that worked, but the industry torpedoed the project after having spent, you know, a small sum to them, $15 million or whatever, uh, you know, to do this. They torpedoed the project because they said that they didn't want to spend a dollar more on new technology than they were already spending on their medieval lagoons and spray fields. So until Smithfield and, and it, there are other integrators much smaller that are doing the same thing until they are willing to, to cop for good technology and treat the waste like we do with human waste. Um, I'm going to keep, you know, pushing the story of wastelands and that they need to, uh, they need to change. Um, and, and frankly, as consumers, we can make a choice at the counter, you know, who we buy our bacon or our, our Christmas ham from. Absolutely. Well, Thank you, Corbin, and thank you for writing this enlightening work of nonfiction, which is sure to be important for many, many years to come. This issue with Smithfield and with factory farms in general is devastating. Uh, the effects on our people and our environment are huge. People will take the time to pick up this book and educate themselves on the history and processes that lie behind their bakery. Listeners, I've been speaking with Corbin Addison, author of Wastelands, The True Story of Farm Country on Trial, which is published by our friends at Alfred A. Knopf. Corbin, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Once again, I would like to thank Corbin Addison for joining me. Copies of Wastelands, The True Story of Farm Country on Trial can be ordered www.explorebooksellers.com. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space 
to get one free audiobook, support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Booking.